Amen. Thank you. All right. Well, we're still in our study of the miracles of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and please open to Matthew chapter 14. We're still in chapter 14. We're going to pick right, right up where we left off last week. Um, Martin Luther once said, the human heart is like a ship on a stormy sea driven about by winds blowing from all four corners of the heavens. Can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, at some point in life, all of us will at one point or another uh, face storms, metaphorically speaking. Uh, sometimes they'll be life-threatening. Other times they will be more frustrating than life-threatening, but we will all face them at some point or another. And in our Gospel of Matthew, the Bible gives us this wonderful story that I think can help us during these dark, stormy times in our lives. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14 again tonight. Um, those of you who weren't here last week, we talked about Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 last week. 5,000 men plus women and children. Um, and that was the only miracle that all four gospel writers include in their version of the events of Jesus' life. So we called it the miracle that nobody ever forgot, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. He had sent the 12 disciples out on a preaching mission. Um, they had returned, having done what he had told them to do. They had taught. They had uh, given them their report. They'd heard news of uh, John the Baptist's martyrdom, and they just needed a time of spiritual refreshment. And so Jesus had told them to get on the boat. We're going to go over to the other side to get some rest. And those of you that were here last week remember that that did not happen at all. The people saw them out there on the water. They began following them along the shore and to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And by the time they had reached that quiet place of solitude, a large multitude had gathered um, uh, there to meet them. And it was there that Jesus taught them, fed them, did the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Um, and then uh, the people... Uh, Matthew's gospel says he also healed them. Um, so that was all going on. And then uh, we saw there were 12 baskets left over, etc. Now, this is one of the, this word in verse 22, you see it a lot in Mark. You see it some in Matthew, but it's a very key word in the gospels. And the word is immediately, immediately. It's just to kind of keep the action going, right? Because sometimes in these stories, Days would have gone by. In some cases, weeks might have gone by. Uh, again, this was three years of life of Jesus. The adult ministry was three years. Uh, and so there were some time that would go on in between some of the stories. So whenever we come to one of these immediately, we know that the gospel writer is wanting us to know that this happened right then. Yeah, I know you all know what immediately means, but just to mean that there wasn't another time span that had gone on. Uh, this was the same day, the same evening, the same night, etc. cetera. Uh, and they're in a relatively deserted place. It's late in the day. Uh, so Jesus went ahead and fed them. They had more left over. And then we come to this. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
Um, I, I brought a Bible with some bigger text in it tonight so I can see it a little better, but it's a slightly different version. So if you're using the ESV, which is what we normally use in our studies on Wednesday nights, um, this one's slightly different. But anyway, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already over a mile from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, I apologize for not having a handout for you all this evening. It's entirely Miss Terry's fault. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's entirely my fault that I don't have a handout for you this evening like I had in the weeks past. So I'll try to, if I want to make a point or something, I'll try to like say, here's like a point. Uh, so immediately, made disciples get in the boat. They start going to the other side. Why the hurry? Well, uh, based on the timeline of events in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the people were beginning to get an understanding of who Jesus was. You know, the, the miracle of the feeding had messianic implications. Uh, keep your finger there in Matthew and look over to John chapter 6. I want you to see what John had to say about that event. Uh, in John chapter 6, in verse 14, this is right after they collected and filled the 12 baskets of the leftovers. And John says in, ver in verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, remember John only does seven miracles. John only lists out seven miracles, and he refers to all of them as signs. So when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So that miracle of the feeding of 5,000 was very eye-opening for at least a large number of the people who were starting to put it together. And John tells us that Jesus had to disperse the crowds and get away because they were going to try and come take him by force and make him king. And we know from the story and from history, his time had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. And he wasn't going to be crowned king the way they were still thinking in that moment. And so uh, he sent the disciples on ahead. He stayed around just long enough to try to get the crowd settled down and dispersed. And then the Bible tells us that he went by himself to go find 
a place of solitude to pray. So if that feeding miracle had happened late in the afternoon or early in the evening, by the time everyone had been fed and the crowd had been dispersed, it was getting even later on into the evening. Uh, Any of you who've ever lived in a state or another country that doesn't have daylight savings time, you know that in most parts of the world, when you get to about 6 o'clock in the evening, it's starting to get dark, regardless of the time of the year it is. And so that's that's happening here. More, more than likely, it's getting later, it's getting darker. Jesus gets up to the perch on the mountainside, and probably by the light of the moon, he sees his disciples in the boat out there on the, rocky wa- on the rough, choppy waters. Um, here in Matthew, it said the winds are contrary. How did this text say it? The boat was over here. Battered by waves because the wind was against them. All right, So it's kind of like a headwind, I guess. Uh, Over in Mark's version of this turn of events, Mark uses the expression, they were straining at the oars, right? So can you just kind of picture, you know, you all ever been out in a boat when it's really windy and it's right in your face, you know, and you can just picture them rowing, 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 and making absolutely no progress whatsoever. Matthew says the winds were contrary, so here's this face this, this strong headwind right in their faces and they're making no ground whatsoever. Um, it's like trying to swim when there's a big undertow. You ever been in that situation? It can be, it's exhausting, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of fresh for me. I was in that situation about a year or so ago and I, I can't remember as an adult a time that I had been in that strong of a situation where the undertow was that strong And the harder I tried to swim to the shore, the less progress I was actually making. You know, that's why they tell you swim sideways. That was going through my head at the time. I'm supposed to be swimming sideways right now. But sideways was even deeper, and I was kind of, anyway, long story. I was exhausted. So you can imagine the disciples out there in that boat rowing, 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 and the wind's just going right against them, and they're, they're, they're physically exhausted. After a long day, they're probably also spiritually exhausted from what just transpired with the feeding of the 5,000 and all that they had witnessed. And then they're just they're making no progress whatsoever. And so you know what's interesting about that. Jesus could have intervened right then. He could have, couldn't he? I mean, in that moment, he could have intervened right then. He could have said a word, and it would all have been resolved. Or he could have said a phrase, which we know he's done elsewhere. He could have said what? Peace, be still. And the waves would have calmed, just like they did in the other story, you know? Um, But he didn't. Sometimes he chooses to let us strain at the oars for a little while longer. Uh, And it's in these moments that we can discover some truths about him. And so after a long while, he went to them, verse 25, says it was about the fourth watch that he went to them. Uh, Probably around 3 a.m. If first watch was 6 to 9 and second watch was 9 to 12, the third watch was 12 to 3, then the fourth watch would have been about 3 to 6. Now, when did all this get started, right? It gets dark around 6, 6.30. It would have been pitch black dark by 7, 7.30. So they're out, this has been going on now for hours. 
We don't know exactly how many, but I personally believe this, was, this had been going on now for at least four or five hours, if not six hours, that they're out there straining at the oars, fighting this headwind, making no progress, getting more physically exhausted, getting more mentally exhausted, probably getting more spiritually, uh, uh, you know, I was going to say dissatisfied, that's not the right word, but just spiritually drained also, probably. Um, and it's about 3 a.m. that he finally starts making his way out there to where they are. Um, and this is what it says. It says that uh, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, or actually verse 25, he came toward them walking on the sea. It's interesting that Mark says he meant to pass by them. So I know we're doing a study on Matthew, but Mark has the same miracle, so I want to pull in that just for a second. Mark said he meant to pass by them walking on the sea. Why do y'all think that might be? That he meant to pass by them. So they could follow him, perhaps. So they could call out to him, like they'd see him. So he, but what's that old song? While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. I don't know. But it's interesting, Mark said he wanted to pass by them, right? So let me give you one possibility, one other possibility besides these that have been named. Uh, Mark, in his account, could have been alluding back to the Old Testament language of, we might say, theophanies, of appearances of God himself, theophany language. Um, when God wanted to appear to a person in the Old Testament, he didn't reveal himself in his full glory because he knew the people couldn't handle it. So he would pass by in Old Testament stories so that they could catch a glimpse of him, okay? Uh, we won't take time to read all of these, but in Exodus chapter 33, um, when Moses has his encounter, I'm gonna paraphrase this, y'all. I'm not being disrespectful to scripture. I'm just paraphrasing. But in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses is basically saying, I wanna see you. And God basically says, you couldn't handle it. And he says, well, then let me just kind of see the edge of your robe a little bit. And it says, well, you wouldn't even be able to handle that. So he's going to pass by and let him just catch a glimpse of his glory. And it still, you know, was more than Moses physically could handle. Um, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, there's a similar encounter where God says he's going to pass by to allow Elijah to just catch a glimpse because he knew that the people couldn't handle it if they realized or saw him in all of his full glory. Um, and I, th maybe Jesus' answer to them lends some evidence or credit or whatever term we want to use. My words fail me sometimes. Pastor Don does such a great job having keywords right there so he doesn't forget them. Mine, mine fleeting, mine are fleeting occasionally, but uh, Jesus says, it is I, when they're like, who is, it's a ghost. It is I, right? It's kind of, is this not harken back a little bit to the I am language of the Old Testament as well? He's not trying to trick them. He's not trying to ignore them when he says he's going to pass by them. 
But it's possible that he wanted to pass by them, that he wanted to see them for who he really is. Maybe he's wanting to see them, wanting him, them to see him, excuse me, as God. But he knows they couldn't handle it if they were to see it all. So he's going to pass by. It's maybe, maybe that's why Mark says he was going to pass by them, picking up that Old Testament uh, theophany language. That's, that's a possibility. Uh, another possibility is similar to what you guys have already alluded to, is that um, he was going to pass by in order to make them call out to him. You know, he got close enough for them to see him, but they were going to have to do their part too. That's, that's another possibility. We don't really know why Mark says pass by and the other gospels don't say it quite the exact same way, but those are possibilities. But we, all we know is that they did see him as he was passing by, and they cried out in fear. They think they've seen a ghost, and he says, it is I, don't be afraid. The Greek literally there, take courage. It is I, stop being afraid. And then there's Peter who says, oh yeah, well, if it's really you, let me walk out there to you. And so he does, until he didn't. <laughs> he had really strong faith until he didn't. That's, you ever, is that, are you ever there? Are you ever there? I've got really, really strong faith until I don't. Boy, that's me way more than I care to admit. Uh, but Jesus grabs him by the hand and he pulls him up and they get back in the boat and the waters are calmed and the, it says they worship him, right? They worshiped him. Uh, so you know in the good times when our bread's being multiplied, it's very easy to get caught up in the blessing and lose our focus on the blesser. Similarly, in bad times, it's easy to get our focus on the storm and not the one who can calm it. And so I want to bring our focus squarely on to Jesus here. Um, there's a good little book. I've never read it all the way cover to cover. John Ortberg, maybe, probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Time flies. Uh, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. And it's a great title. It's a great title. Uh, and it's a great little book on faith. I want us to take a slightly different angle, though, tonight than if we want to walk on water, we have to get out of the boat. I, let's, let's, we're going to focus on Jesus here and, and on the Jesus of the story. And uh, because it is he who comes in our good times and in our bad times, in our hunger and in our plenty, in our calm and in our storms, and he says, it is I. And so here we go. Here's the first thing I want us to notice, and that is that when we can't see Jesus, Jesus sees us. When we can't see Jesus, Jesus sees us. Um, verse 23 and 4, he dismissed the crowds. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already over a mile from the land, battered by waves because the wind uh, was against him. Now again, I'm going to tell you that. Keep your finger there and flip over to Mark chapter 6 because... Mark adds, Mark adds a little insight here. Verse 48 of Mark chapter 6 says, 
He saw them being battered as they rode. It's implied in Matthew. I don't think we would be reading something in the scripture that's not there if we went ahead and made this point just for Matthew because I think that's the implication. Uh, but Mark goes ahead and says it for us explicitly. He saw them being battered as they rode because the wind was against them. And so when we can't see Jesus, Jesus sees us. He's at the top of the mountain praying, watching. He's concerned. He's told us in his word, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And say, then why did he wait six hours or four to six hours to go intervene? I don't know the answer to that. One is, why, did, why had he gone up there? What had he gone up there to do? He'd gone up there to pray. And that was his primary business at the moment, was to go and get aside and get alone and talk to the Father. And he knew they were gonna be okay. Even if they were gonna be tired and even if they were gonna be beaten and battered, they were gonna be okay, and he knew that. And so maybe it's that he waited six hours because he didn't wanna lose his primary focus on why he'd gone up there in the first place, which was to pray and to get in communication with the Father. Because frankly, if we're not in communication with the Father, what good are we to do all the rest of the stuff he's called us to do? It's nigh impossible, right? I won't ask for a show of hands, but we've all learned this lesson the hard way at some point in our lives, that when we're not spending that time in communication with the Father, when we're not in prayer, we lose our focus, we lose our ability to do the other things he's called us to do. So we're not gonna fault Jesus for waiting up to six hours, but that's one possibility of why he might have, because he'd gone up there to pray and he was gonna pray. And then when he was finished praying, then he'd go down there and check on them. I don't know that, but I think it's possible that that's, that that's what's going on. Um, but just because they couldn't see him during those hours doesn't mean that he couldn't see them, and he could. And it reminds us of, again, language that we go and pick up back up out of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, when God's talking to Moses about the people of Israel there in Egypt in captivity, he says it this way in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Israel. And he adds, and I've heard their cries, and I've come down. You know, which Jesus eventually does in this story too. He comes down from the mountain. So I don't want to make the try to connect it in ways it's not, but Jesus saw them when they couldn't see him. It reminds us of something God the Father had said to Moses all those couple thousand years sooner. I've seen, I've seen their affliction. I've seen their oppression. Uh, how about in Isaiah chapter 38? King Hezekiah, Isaiah 38, King Hezekiah had been told he was ill and he was going to die young. So he prayed to God, appealing to God's mercy and for God to remember his faithfulness. What was God's reply? I've heard your prayers and what? I've seen your tears. I've seen, he sees. Proverbs 15, three. The eyes of the Lord are in some places. Not nearly enough of y'all are shaking your heads at me. Where Berean? Where Berean class? Where are they? Yeah, the, the Berean, they're, the, they're the ones who, the Berean means diggers of into the word, so they better know this answer. 
The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so out there in the water, in the midst of the storm, rowing against the fierce winds, and they couldn't see their Savior up on the mountain, he saw them, and he was watching over them. And when you find yourself in the midst of your darkness, when you're caught up in the storms, you can't see Jesus because your focus has shifted to the winds and to the waves, and sometimes your focus shifts to the rowing. Let's be honest, Lord, I'm just trying to get through this one day. Yeah, he sees you. Don't ever forget that. The gospel writer captured the truth. The gospel songwriter, excuse me. Never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Right, that's not quite the melody, but I'm not a singer. All right, I'm not a singer. I sang little as much when God is in it last week, and y'all missed it, Todd. Labor not for wealth or fame. It was good. You can totally miss. You can go back and listen. You want me to break out in a song and dance? Sure. I'm not gonna do it. No, but I, 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 I'm not gonna apologize. I love like bringing some of the old hymns into the application part of of a message because it just, you know, it it pulls from our life experiences. You know, I lo- anyway, I like to do that so. Never alone. We can't see him, he sees us. But then we keep reading on. There's another insight here. And that is that when we are not able to get to Jesus, Jesus is able to get to us. Verse 25 is the fourth night, fourth watch of the night. And what does it say? Actually, this one says about three in the morning. It just translates fourth night, fourth watch for us. He came toward them walking on the sea. Now, we're not going to de-emphasize the miracle of walking on the water here. But what I want us to see is that in the midst of all of that, he came to them. He leaves the mountain, he walks down to the lake, he steps out onto the waves, and he starts walking across the stormy waters to get to the people he loved. You remember, this was a literal storm, this was literal wind, literal water, literal waves, And you say, well, my storms are figurative. My winds is the circumstances that are engulfing me. My waves are fear and insecurity. How will Jesus watching from heaven come down the mountain to calm my storm? Folks, he already has. He already has. God's word says that he comes to us by praying for us in heaven. And we know we're always supposed to be praying to him and praying in his name. But how many times do we stop to take comfort in the fact that he's praying for us? Romans 8, verse 34 and 35. Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who what? Makes intercession for us. And who then, Paul asks, shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. So while he may not be physically coming down in bodily form, he's still coming on our behalf by making intercession, praying for us from heaven. But you know what else he's done? He's given us his spirit. He doesn't... ongoing, present, active, indicative, continue coming to us. 
folks, because he's already, he has already come to us. He has already sent the Spirit to us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Christ's presence with us. He has come. Uh, John 14, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper, and that you may abide, excuse me, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, Jesus says, and he ends this sentence this way, I will come to you. I will come to you. And when he says, I will come to you, I will come to you and I will send you my spirit, they're the same thing in Jesus' mind in that moment as he's talking to the disciples. So when we, when we can't get to him, he will come to us. What we, I guess what I could say is he already has because he's given us the Holy Spirit and in the midst of these storms, the world has no hope. They can't receive him for they neither see him nor know him. They have no hope but to fall into discord and disarray. But Christian, you have a comforter. Jesus has promised to be with you, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus. With you, in you, for you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So when he saw the disciples out on the storm, he didn't just kind of come to the water's edge and go, hey guys, I'm over here, row this way. Row sideways. It's a, it's a rip current. Row sideways. He didn't. He went to them. He went to right where they were in the middle of their need. Uh, and so he doesn't stop doing that. He hasn't stopped that. He does that for you as well. When you can't get to him, he comes to you. He's interceding for you even now. And he's comforting you with the presence of the Holy Spirit even now. So when you're not able to get to Jesus, Jesus gets to you. That's what we see in our story. Another insight we see here is that when I don't know what to say to Jesus, Jesus speaks to me. Or when we don't know what to say, he speaks. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they didn't recognize him. Scripture says they thought he was a ghost. So they cry out, it's a ghost! But then here's another one of these immediately. But immediately he talked to them. He said to them, take heart or take courage, depending on your translation of the text. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, uh, that first take courage or take heart there, some translations render that, be of good cheer. And I love that, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I'm not criticizing it. Uh, it's a legitimate translation of that particular Greek construction in certain English, be of good cheer. But like, I love that in that moment, that idea that take heart might also mean be of good cheer because when you're in the middle of your junk, that's a good theological deep term right there, junk. I mean, when you're in the middle of it and when you're going through it, the last thing you wanna hear is somebody come along and be like, just buck up, man. Just turn that frown upside down. You don't want to hear that right then in your flesh, you know? I want to hear, oh, I'm Stuart. I'm so sorry. Poor Stuart. Oh, you have it so bad. Oh, it's not fair. That's, that's what my flesh wants to hear, right? And Jesus comes to the disciples. Be of good cheer. You're like, what? In the middle of this? And that's exactly what he says. Take heart because it's me. 
So yeah, we can be of good cheer, right? Not to, not to uh, make light of it. We can. Uh, don't be afraid, he says. Sometimes in the middle of these storms, we don't have a clue what to pray. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll raise mine. I can't tell you how many times I'll lay there with Holly and go, Lord, I don't even know what to pray about this right now, but I'm giving it to you. More, more <laughs> as my kids have gotten older, probably more often than before. Lord, I don't even know what to pray right now, but I'm giving it to you. Uh, words will escape us sometimes, and all we can do is cry out. And so Jesus says, okay, it's me. So take courage and don't be afraid. Uh, and he will see us when we can't see him, and he comes to us when we can't get to him, and he'll speak when we don't know what to say. But folks, when he speaks, we better listen. We better listen. Stop being afraid. He doesn't expect us to see him right away. He knows that it's dark. He knows the winds are strong. He knows the waves are high. He doesn't expect us to see him right away. But when he comes, he's going to say, take courage and don't be afraid. Um, I'm going to jump ahead and then we're going to come back to that, that, that idea of how he speaks. But I want to jump ahead and, and go to, to Peter's little moment here before we conclude. Uh, I love Peter. You know, the, in the 70s, those books about spiritual temperaments and things, I was always told I was a Peter, uh, a sanguine Peter. I don't even know what that means anymore, but that's what they used to tell me. I love Peter. Peter, they may, Jesus, they may betray you, but I never will. You know, who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm gonna cut this guy's ear off, Jesus. Right? So it's Peter. Here's Peter once again. Jesus, if that's really you, let me walk out there to you. All right. <laughs> now look, I, I wanna back up. I'm not typically a big proponent of allegorizing the narrative portions of scripture. And if you don't know what that means, okay. If you do know what that means, even better. But the narrative portions of scripture are the stories. You know, Paul wrote the letters, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are the wisdom literature, right? We have the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. And then we have the, the narrative portions, the stories, and then the prophets, okay? And of course, the Apocalyptic literature. Revelation just gets to live in a little world by itself. But when it comes to the narratives, uh, the Gospels and Acts, particularly in the New Testament, um, and really so many of the stories of the Old Testament, we do have to be careful that we don't just allegorize them constantly by it's like, by that what I mean is to say we're going to take this narrative and in order to make a modern day application, we're going to say certain things in the text mean something else. I'll give you a good example, David and Goliath, okay? Um, and if you've ever heard the sermon given this way, please, I'm not criticizing, I'm just explaining what I'm trying to say. Uh, you hear a sermon on David and Goliath, and maybe the sermon goes, we're going to teach you to slay your giants, right? Who are the giants in your life? And then we're just going to pick five things, you know, depression, um, 
discouragement. They all got to be alliterated, right? Uh, depression, discouragement, uh, some other D word, and another D word. And these are your giants. And we're going to teach you to slay them. And so you're allegorizing Goliath. and that, That's what I'm talking about. Or, or well, how about this one? You got five stones that you can use to slay your giant. Now, really, it only took one, so I don't know which one's less important. The Bible says David took five stones, but only one giant knocked him out cold. Only one stone knocked him out cold. But they're like, you got five stones, Bruce. You got the Bible, and you got prayer, and you got worship, and fellowship, and a fifth one. You got five. That's allegorizing, okay? And I'm, not, I'm really not mocking, but... We have to be really, really careful that we don't just like read a modern application back onto one of the narrative portions of scripture just because it makes the sermon a little easier to write. Um, we just wanna watch that. And I say that to say that in the case of this particular story that we're dealing with tonight, uh, I don't believe we're allegorizing it that way or to that extent when we extend the application somewhat allegorically or metaphorically, maybe is a better way to say it, because in this story, in this moment, their physical storm was a circumstance they could not control, right? And so when we talk about storms in life, we're not forcing something on the text that doesn't allow it because uh, we will all encounter these moments in the life of a disciple where we get into a circumstance that we cannot control. And not only do I say the narrative allows it, but in the case of this story, the narrative might even require it or suggest it. Otherwise, the only application that would be relevant would be to those moments that were actually physically, literally out in a boat on choppy waters. And that's not the point the gospel writers are trying to make here. So to, to take it as metaphorically for, for storms, to show Jesus' involvement in those moments where the circumstances are overwhelming us, is not quite the same thing as allegorizing um, the way. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, some of y'all are nodding. Some of you are like, we don't care, just finish. <laughs> All right. Um, but I did want to stop there and like clarify that. Because when we talk about straining at the oars or the storms of life, um, I think in this case, that's what the text wants us to do. That's what God gave us this particular portion of Scripture for. And it's not the same thing as, you know, you got your five stones and all that. Um, Verses uh, 28 and 9. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And I'm not going to insult your intelligence. You've, many of you have heard these stories all your lives. You know what happens next. It says, when he saw the wind, he started sinking. It's all the waves. Now, do you all think he had not seen the wind prior to getting out of the boat? They had possibly been out there for five hours. Right? He had seen the wind. He'd seen the waves. So, so it's not like he didn't know that it was windy, and it's not like he didn't know that there were these giant choppy waves when he said to Jesus, hey, if it's really you, let me walk out there on the water to be next to you. He hadn't forgotten that it was windy outside in the middle of a storm. 
But at first he says, let me come to you, Jesus. He's asking to walk on the water, to go out to where Jesus was, because in that particular moment, he wasn't focused on the storm. In that particular moment, he was focused on Jesus, right? But then in verse 30, his focus shifts back. When he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. His focus shifts back from Jesus, back to the waves and the storm themselves. Right? Oops. And now he's afraid. He wasn't afraid before. I'm so Peter, y'all. <laughs> I have so much faith until I don't. Uh, so he cries out. He cries out. He doesn't know what else to do. So he cries out, and Jesus saved him from drowning. Even when we lose our focus on Jesus, he's still present and able to intervene. And then he says this in verse 31, second part of verse 31, Peter, why did you doubt? Um, we know why Peter doubted. Because it was really windy. And those waves were really big. Right? We know why he doubted. Uh, why do we sometimes doubt? Well, okay. Bruce said because we have little faith. Speak for yourself, Bruce. I have big faith just until I don't. No, you're right. Yeah, I mean, help out my unbelief. I mean, because we're human beings, and we have that thing that the reformers called the remnant of the old man, even though I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. The reformers called it that remnant of the old man that's still in there, warring it, warring at me, lying to me, you know? Okay, well, God was big enough for that last set of circumstances, but I mean, this one's really bad. You know, he may not be able to see us through this one, guys. You know, I mean, that's just, we're human beings and we're fallen, and even though we're saved, we still sin and we still have doubts, and sometimes we listen to lies, and so we doubt. Um, and we lose our focus on Jesus. Jesus is the point of this story, not my faith. He hasn't lost his focus, right? God does not ever get distracted by something else. Are you not glad of this? How many times have you gotten distracted by something else? Anybody in here have a swimming pool? Anybody? No? Ever had a swimming pool? You throw the hose in there and you turn the water on and you're like, all right, I'm gonna let it run for just 15 minutes. You know, I'm just going to let it run for 15 minutes just to get the level back up to where I can run the pump and get the thing cleaned and get it going. I'm just going to run it, right? What, inevitably, what happens? You forget. Yeah, and next thing you got, it's over the edge. It's seeping out all through the cracks in your sidewalk. And, you know. Chemicals all mixed up. So, but you know what? Isn't it good to know you have a God that doesn't ever get distracted by something else? <laughs> when I was 16, I had a waterbed. Y'all remember those things? Man, what a fad. I want them to come back so bad, but kind of I don't too. But somebody, well, we had just moved to East Texas from Virginia, and Virginia doesn't have Whataburger. All right, it's one of the few things that, that they really need that they don't have up there. It's beautiful other than that. They don't have Whataburger. And so uh, we'd moved to East Texas, and my buddies had come, and they were visiting me for the first time, and so we're putting my water, my water, my water bed, my water burger, my water bed together, 
because, you know, that's what you had back then, because they were cool or something. Uh, <laughs> whoever invented those things? What in the world? Um, but anyway, so we turned the water on that thing, and we're just goofing around, and my buddy says, hey, let's go to that Whataburger place. We're like, sure, why not? That sounds fun. So we go to Whataburger, and oh, there just happens to be a Cavender's Boot City right next door to it, and so we wander in there, you know, three preppy kids from Virginia wander into Cavender's Boot City in our sneakers and our Bermuda shorts or whatever, and they're looking at us like, what are you? Uh, and like an hour later, we get home to my house, and we notice that my window to my room is open, and there's a hose running out into the yard. And I'm like, I wonder what's going on. And then I realized my, that water bed was like this big. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. So I got distracted. That's all that to say. That just by telling that story, Todd, I got distracted. Uh, but God doesn't get distracted. That's the point. You know what? He's never going to turn the faucet on to start filling up a water bed and forget all about it and let a big giant water bubble form. He's not going to do it. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't lose his focus. Jesus had not lost his focus on Peter just because Peter had lost his focus on Jesus. And so I'm sitting there looking at the wind and the waves and I, I'm doing so great, Lord. I'm walking on water. I have so much faith until I don't. I wonder if Jesus thought about this though. Right? But he doesn't lose his focus on me. And so what does he do to Peter? It just says he reaches down and he grabs him and he saves him. You know what's interesting about that? Look how far Peter had gotten before he blew it. He'd gotten close enough that all Jesus had to do was reach down and grab him. Like how close had he gotten before he kind of blew it? And I say blew it because I'm on this side of the history and I can, you know, I'll get to heaven. He'll be like, easy for you to say. Um, but Jesus didn't lose his focus, right? And then they get back in the boat and the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly you are the son of God. Interesting point here. The crowd had begun to realize who he was after the feeding of the 5,000 to the point that John in his version of that event, of those events tells us that Jesus had to get away from them because he didn't want them to come take him and try to force him to be king too soon, Right? So John tells us that the crowd started realizing that after the miracle, and it takes the disciples, you know, six, eight hours longer <laughs> to start putting it together. I don't know if that says anything about them or about us or about what, but it's just, it's just interesting to me. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly you are the son of God. Uh, you know, part of the problem had been that they were so focused on the storm around them that they'd lost their focus on Jesus. Part of Peter's problem had been that he got so focused. I mean, he got to the finish line. And I wish Hal Habaker was still here tonight because, you know, his whole ministry is finishing well. You know, Peter had gotten like right close enough to Jesus that all he had to do was reach down and grab him. He'd gotten so close, then he lost his focus and he began to drown. And the same thing can happen to us. So what's the proper response for us is to turn our focus back to Christ when we're in the middle of these storms. Sounds so easy. It sounds so elementary. I almost feel like I'm insulting your intelligence by saying that. But it can be so hard to do, difficult to do. 
I'm in the middle of this, Lord. In my brain, I know I need to just focus on you, reach out to you, cry out to you, pray to you, listen to songs about you, talk to you, listen to teaching about you. But Lord, I'm just going to focus on my circumstances a little while longer. It's so easy to fall into that. Uh, when we know where we need to turn it back to. Um, so how do we do it? Let me just throw this out as a suggestion. When we find ourselves in the middle of that, we've already said when we don't know what to say, he speaks to us. Folks, we just we have to tell ourselves the truth and claim the promises of his word in those moments. Oh my goodness, y'all know I love my son. My son's 20 years old. He's a sophomore in college and uh, he's my only boy. And so I love him more than I know what to say sometimes. And he's been going through a hard time somewhat here lately. And every night we just tell him, you have to believe the truth, son. You have to believe the truth. Oh, yeah, but I can't. Nah, don't believe that. You have to believe the truth. Well, I probably should have never. Nah, tell yourself the truth. Right? And I'm, you know, he's not here. I can pick on him. But we, we, we have, this is the truth. And we must remember that when we're in those moments, in those circumstances, in those storms, when everything around us feels like it's just about to make us just drown, and we want to believe all of those lies, this is the truth. And sometimes we just need to remember it, claim it, sometimes verbalize it. I'm not doing prosperity pathology here, I promise. I'm not. But think about this, Psalm 46.1. Let's just look right there real fast. I got four minutes. I'm going to use every one of them. God is our refuge and strength, the helper who is always found in times of trouble. Always. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. We all know Philippians 4.13 from Christian athletes, but do we know Philippians 4.13 in its context of verse 12. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Yeah? Isaiah 40. Now I'm back in the Old Testament again. Isaiah 40. Y'all forgive me for licking my fingers. My mother-in-law thinks that's gross. But no one else is going to use this Bible. Isaiah 40 and verse 29. He gives, me, he gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. 41 verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand and say to you, do not fear, I will help you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, for Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. So y'all, when I say we must in these moments claim the promises of God's word, this isn't like I'm not doing Benny Hinn up here or Kenneth Copeland. I'm just telling you guys, this is the truth and the devil 
will try to make us believe lies, and it's even more so when we're going through the junk in this world. He'll want us to believe those lies. And so we have to come back to the truth. And when we don't know what to say to Jesus, Jesus speaks to us, it is I. I'm the one who can calm this storm. I am here. I am with you. You keep your eyes focused on me. I'm going to get in the boat. And then the water's calm. And it was just, everything was still. Don't be afraid, he said. So we have a Savior who sees us, who comes to us, who speaks to us, who never loses his focus. So when he says, don't be afraid, we say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. The southern tip of Africa experiences tremendous storms. At one point in history, no one knew what lay beyond the Cape because no ship had ever returned to tell its tale. And so among the ancients, it had become known as the Cape of Storms. Until the 16th century, an explorer named Vasco da Gama successfully sailed around the point, the southern tip of Africa, and he found that beyond the raging storms laid a great calm sea, and beyond that, the shores of India. And the Cape of the name of the Cape was changed from the Cape of Storms to the Cape of Good Hope. See, on the other side of the storms are calmer waters. But sometimes in order to get to the calm water, we have to go through the raging sea. So please remind yourselves that you have a Savior who sees you when you can't see him. And he comes to you when you don't even know how to get there. And he will never lose his focus on what God, Father, has called him to do or given him his assignment to do when we lose our focus on him. And he will speak to us the words of truth that we need to hear. He has spoken to us the words of truth that we need to hear. Isn't that good? That's good. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for an hour that, at least for me, just flew by. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus. Thank you for being you. Lord, I just confess to you right now, I've lost my focus so many times when I'm just kind of going through a hard time or a battle or a storm or a raging sea. And I confess to you that I'm pretty sure I'm going to do it again at some point in the future. And so, Lord, I just praise you for being a rock. I praise you for being omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, all of those things that you will never lose your focus and that you cannot fail, and you will not fail. And Lord, I thank you for your word that is true and never returns void. And so I pray for all of us, Lord, that when we find ourselves in those times when it is so easy to listen to all kinds of voices telling us all kinds of things, filling our heads, Lord, that we'll listen to you and that we'll claim the promises of your word, that you are a help in times of trouble, that you are here, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that whether in good or in plenty, in good or in bad, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and that we can say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. So Lord, give us that ability to respond. Lord, it's supernatural. We know it's supernatural. We need you at work in us to help us do that. And so we just pray that you would do that for us in the midst of our own storms. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now, I misspoke last week. Next week really is going to be Ron. And then I think I come back the week after that. 
and then Terry the week after that. So then Stephen. So only four more. Only four more. All right. No, I've got one more. Yeah, after Ron. Yeah, yeah. Four more. Uh, don't forget Easter candy if you want to bring some Sunday. The bins will still be out there. Ladies, don't forget there's still plenty of places to sign up for the ladies' retreat next weekend. Not this weekend, but next weekend. And uh, that's that.